If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. God has delivered Israel from being in bondage in Egypt and has brought them to Mount Sinai to bring them into a covenant relationship with himself. The beginning of that covenant relationship is found in the Ten Commandments. There are two things that I've mentioned the last two Sundays that I want to repeat again today. The first is that the Exodus comes before Sinai, redemption comes before the commandments, grace before law. God doesn't give the law and tell the people, if you're really, really good, then I'll give you grace. He redeems them graciously, and then he gives them the law. So the law was given to a redeemed people. The second thing, and I think I just mentioned this last Sunday, um, the Exodus was not liberation. Okay, it was not liberation. It was, in fact, an exchange of masters. They had been under the rule of Pharaoh. Now they are under the rule of God. They have not been set free to do whatever they want because, well, first of all, human beings are never free, as Paul tells us in Romans 6. Um, But now they are under the rule of God. And if they're not under the rule of God, chances are, and I think God knew this, that they would end up under the rule of someone like Pharaoh, some other human ruler who would be a tyrant. Um, So he gives them commandments in part as a basis for a new society, an alternate society that would be different and counter to what they had experienced in the land of Egypt. They cannot resist. I think this is important. They cannot resist Egypt, if you wish, or some other form of tyranny unless they have a basis for it. And that basis is found in the Ten Commandments. This is true for us as well, as the children of God. In the New Testament, we hear the language of Exodus used time and time again, though I think it slips by us. We don't always pick up on it. One place is in Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Israel went from Egypt to being God's people We used to be the children of darkness in the kingdom of darkness, and now we are the children of God. Last week, we looked at the first commandment, which, as I saw, as I presented, is the foundation for the other nine commandments and actually for all of God's other commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. As I said, this is the beginning of the law. This is the foundation of the covenant. Uh, God redeems them. He is their God. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt, and therefore they are not to have any other gods. There's a strong connection between the first commandment and the other nine, but particularly between the first and the second, which is what we'll be studying today. So today, the second commandment, if you look at at verses 4, 5, and 6 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I don't normally give titles to my sermons, uh, but this one I think would serve as an exception. And the title would be The Problems We Have with the Second Commandment. Because there are a number of issues that arise in going through this commandment, uh, which have caused a lot of confusion and a lot of debate. You know, what has God commanded us in this commandment? Who is God and what does he expect of us? And I decided I think this is perhaps the best way to study the second commandment. The first problem or the first difficulty is something I mentioned in the introductory sermon uh, several weeks ago. The Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church have different versions of the Ten Commandments and they have eliminated the second commandment. And then they doubled up on the tenth. So the ninth is don't covet your neighbor's wife and then the tenth is don't covet everything else your neighbor has, okay? So the reading is, I am the Lord your God, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they go from the first to the third. So one might wonder, well, if they cut out the second commandment, maybe we should, does it belong there? Yes, it does belong there. We will see as we go along today. The first commandment is don't follow follow other gods. The second commandment is don't corrupt your worship of God with vain images. And then as we will see the Lord willing next week, don't use God's name in vain. Someone has noted that these three commandments are three warnings, three divine warnings against vain and shallow thoughts about God. So the first commandment, the first warning is syncretism. Syncretism is when you mix things together that don't normally go together. Don't think, as someone wrote, that you can mix God with your worship of idols. If you want one-third of God and two-thirds of other idols, you will get none of God. Syncretism is vain thinking about God. The second warning is from the second commandment, and it forbids reductionism. Don't think you can reduce God down into something manageable that you can hold in one hand, like a household idol or a little golden calf. Reductionism is vain thinking about God. And then again, Lord willing, next week we will see the third, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is presumption. Don't speak rashly of God. It is vanity to think that we can invoke God's name to cover over our ignorance of who he really is. Presumption about God is a cloak over vain thinking about him. So the first problem is, Does this commandment belong here? Yes, it does. And as we see, the first, second, and third all tie together. uh, And we should see it that way. The second problem, and this will be much longer, is uh, has to do with translations. Here at the church on Melrose, many years ago, we began to use the new international version, the NIV, the 1984 edition. There have been several revisions since then. And we did so because I thought it was more accessible in terms of language and expression. But from time to time, the NIV sort of drops the ball when it comes to translation. And the second commandment is a case in point. The King James Version and the English Standard Version, this is how they present the second commandment. 
you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity upon the fathers, or the iniquity of the fathers, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commands, or my commandments. So what are the differences? Well, the NIV says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the ESV and other translations, the King James, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Uh, So it's idol versus a carved image. And someone might say, well, it seems to be, they're saying the same thing, just in a different way. And I would admit that I, I think I understand the NIV's approach, focusing on idols. But I would argue that when you say that you shall not make for yourself an idol, this is basically sort of a restating of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. An idol is something that one puts in the place of God. But an idol doesn't necessarily have physical form. And the second commandment is dealing specifically with the physical form of an idol that one would put in the place of God. Several years ago here, we studied uh, 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. I don't know if you remember, but it ends, in my opinion, in a very strange way. Because he talks about love, he talks about confessing our sins, uh, talks about false teachers coming in. And then at the very last sentence, it's at the very, very end, he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. First of all, for the first time since chapter 3, he refers to them as dear children, which is a very tender and affectionate way to address them. But why keep yourselves from idols? He hasn't mentioned idols at all in the epistle, and then he seems to tack it on at the very end. Well, someone has written, idolatry, it turns out, is always a temptation in a fallen world. That's why John writes it. Which is why John Calvin says in the Institutes that our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I mentioned this last week. Someone else has written, For followers of Jesus Christ, breaking with idols and living in truth are finally not a test of orthodoxy but of love. That is why idolatry is worse than apostasy. It is adultery. Love is the final expression of truth, just as loyalty to truth is the vital test of love. Idols oftentimes don't appear to be wrong when they show up, and we don't really think about them. You know, we, there's not reflection. They're just, they're just sort of there. They creep in. They pervert our priorities very quietly so that we sort of miss them. We miss, in fact, what they are. And Remember, the commandment is given to redeem people. We are redeemed people. They, in fact, can exist under a thin veneer of Christian practice and language, which means they're easily masked, that they're there and we don't even realize it. They are dangerous. And this is why John ends his, his epistle saying, keep yourself from idols. And they are so common. Uh, 
if we as God's people, if somehow we took to heart what scripture says and we would put on glasses that would allow us to see idolatry, we would see that we are surrounded in this world and perhaps in our own lives by shrines to various idols. An idol isn't simply something you can see. There are idols of the heart, such as comfort, approval, control, or power. You know, we want a lack of stress. We want affirmation. We want certainty. And we want success. That's idolatry. But I do think that the second commandment is specifically about images. That it is, as I mentioned a moment ago, of reducing God to something you can hold, something you can manage. That this is God. This is my God. We see this in the story of the golden calf. When Moses is going up to get the Ten Commandments, the people are like, he's been up there 40 days. We don't know what's happened to him. And make us a god. And so Aaron says, give me gold, your earrings. And he makes a golden calf. And he says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. They're going to worship this golden calf, but he calls it a festival to the Lord. Aaron had reduced God to something visible and something manageable. If you think about it, the second commandment makes perfect sense. It makes total sense. Because to make an image of God is, in fact, impossible. God is spirit, and as such, invisible. He has no physical form. How, then, can you make an image of God? Well, if you can't make an image of God then you can do what is forbidden in the second commandment, and that is make an image of something in creation. Something in the heavens above, something that's in the earth beneath, or in the waters beneath the earth. And why would you do that? Well, one author in a recent book has observed, in order to disobey God, we must first diminish him. We will not adore a being who is our subordinate. We, can't, we don't stand in awe of what is beneath us. Making an image of God or something that God has created is a way of allowing us to imagine that we, in fact, are in control. The second commandment was radically different from everything in the ancient world. Everybody had carved images. Everybody had uh, idols in temples, in the king's palace, in homes. They had more than one god, many gods, and these gods had forms. When God tells the Israelites that they are not to worship other gods, first commandment, and then he forbids them from making graven images, God is separating his people from the rest of the world. The rest of the world has idols. They have images. You are not to worship anything else besides me. No idols and no images. Why? What's the big deal? Well, when a person makes an image, that person, in essence, creates a new world order. A new world order, which is in opposition to God's this is our father's world we sing but no when you make a, a, an idol 
you in fact are changing the dynamic and saying, no, this is in fact my world. We are made in God's image and God put us here to be in charge of creation. We are under God, but we are in charge of creation. But because of sin, we are not content to be under God and to be in charge of creation. We want to be like God. And what did God do? He created things. And so human beings want to create things either in their image or in the image of something else. And that will be a manageable God that they can take around with them and someone that they can control. The question comes up, does this mean that all images are wrong? So a sculpture, for example, a painting, a film, a photograph. Um, no, it is not. That's not what the second commandment is saying. Uh, there are some who might argue that the second commandment is inconsistent with the rest of what God says. Uh, because he says you're not to make any images. And then we find him commanding and giving instructions to make images. Uh, for the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 26, make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skillful craftsman. In other words, the image of a cherubim, which is a six-wing angelic being, you're to put that into these curtains. And then for the tabernacle, uh, inside you have the Ark of the Covenant. And what is the Ark of the Covenant? You make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end, second cherub on the other. Uh, make the cherub of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them, the cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover. Very specific instructions. I was like, wait a minute. I thought you said we are not to have any gra graven images, any carved images. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, in the temple that Solomon built, in the inner sanctuary, that's the holiest place, he made a pair of cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So on the Ark of the Covenant, which is then put in between, uh, you have these two cherubim. But when Solomon makes a temple, he makes two large 15-foot-tall cherubim. Okay? And they are to have wings that are five cubits long. That's seven and a half week, uh, feet long, six of them. Uh, very, very specific instructions. Uh, their wings are to be spread out, the wing of one touching one wall while the wing of the other touches the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Very specific instructions. On the walls around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. I'm sorry, he carved cherubim? I thought we weren't supposed to have carved images. And then, for me, the, the biggie is in the courtyard of the temple, which is what people could see. They couldn't see the holiest place, but this they could see. There was to be this huge basin, doesn't a pool, I guess. It's called the sea that would hold 12,000 gallons of water that is for ritual cleansing for the priests as they would uh, do the sacrifices. 
the sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. So they're facing outward, three, 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 three. Their hinds are in the back, and then the sea is put on top of them. It's like, wait a minute. We have, we have bulls made of metal, but what about the golden calf? Why was that so bad? And now God's commanding. Well, some would say, did God actually do that? We know that God gave instructions to Moses about the tabernacle, but did he give instructions about the temple? Yes. First Chronicles chapter 28. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. That is where the two cherubim were. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries of the dedicated things. God gave instructions. By the way, I mentioned the sea, but there were also sort of ten portable things uh, for washing. Um, And they are to be on stands of bronze, and on the panels were to be lions, bulls, cherubim. So it just seems like God is contradicting himself. So what's the deal? Are we allowed to have images or aren't we? Well, the second commandment has to do with worship. The prohibition is against creating anything for the purpose of worship. In other words, I'm creating this thing so I can pray to it so I can worship it. It's a representation of, of God or part of his creation, something that's manageable. I can see it. It's right there. I can burn incense to it. It's, it's right there. That's what the second commandment is about. It is not a prohibition of any representational art. Like, no, 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 you can't do photographs. You can't do film. You can't do sculpture. Uh, because of the second commandment. No, that's simply not true. Artistic ability is a gift from God. Of that, there can be no question. Bezalel is someone who helped construct the tabernacle. God told Moses what to do. Moses told Bezalel, and he had the skill to do this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. God gave Bezalel this skill. And I would say artistic ability is indeed a gift from God. It wasn't just him, by the way. Aholiab was somebody who helped him, and all the craftsmen that helped Bezalel. If you've ever seen a great work of art, there can be no question that this is a gift from God, this ability to create something of beauty and of wonder. And the second commandment does not prohibit that. What it prohibits is making something for the purpose of worshiping it. 
I just have to mention, I think Ruth has seen it. Guy and I did um, the David that's in Florence. It's in this room, and you walk in, and it's as though he is alive. It is a magnificent work of art. Or in St. Peter's in the Vatican, the Pietà. It is a gift from God to create these things, and we should not in any way diminish them. So that's one difficulty. Idols or images? I say it's images, okay? But there is the idolatry that comes in. The second difficulty is in verse number five. Punishing the children for the sins of the fathers. That's what the NIV says. The ESV has visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. The problem is this. The Bible is very, very clear about something. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 24. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. And yet it seems, at least with the NIV, that you're punishing the children for what the fathers did. And I I actually don't think that's what it's saying. Um, We have an example of this in the life of Amaziah, who was king of Judah, uh, with regard to the men who murdered his father. Uh, after the, this is Second Kings 24. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put the sons of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, when the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. So, I do not think that what is being said in the second commandment is that children will be punished for what their fathers have done. They are not to be punished for the sins of the father. In Ezekiel, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor the father share in the guilt of the son. So what, in fact, is being said? What is intended? Well, you need to stop and think of the background, the historical context. Israel has been in Egypt as slaves. Uh, God told Abraham they would be there for four generations. This is in Genesis 15. And for these generations, if it's four, if it's more, the Egyptians, in fact, had built cities. They had built monuments with slave labor. That is, They had economic growth without having to pay wages. And the Egyptians, generation after generation, enjoyed the benefits of this economic relationship. Then came God's judgment. You see, with compound economic benefits comes compounded judgment. Both had built up over time. And it is the final generation the tenth plague, the firstborn being put to death, not for the sins of the fathers, as much as the fact that these generations later had enjoyed the benefits of what had happened before them. And they did not make restitution. Well, they did in the end, because when the Israelites left, they gave them all sorts of gold, silver, and clothing, which represented back pay for the previous four centuries. All of this points to the fact that children oftentimes repeat the sins of their fathers. 
Well, why is it that the children get punished but not the fathers? The fathers may, in fact, and fathers, we mean parents, not just fathers, but parents, escape the judgment of God in this life because God has shown them mercy. And the children are also shown mercy in that they have the opportunity to repent. They may say, you know, Grandpa did this, and that just doesn't seem right. And I think we shouldn't do that anymore. They have that opportunity. God is merciful. But if the, sins, if the sons do not repent, if they continue in the sins of their parents, in a real sense, their sin is even greater because they have enjoyed the benefits that have accrued from this sinful behavior of their parents, and they have not repented. And how long will this go on? Well, it says to the third and fourth generation. The children have followed the examples of their parents. The parents have passed on to them a tradition of disobedience. And the children will suffer more because God showed mercy to the parents. And now the bill has come due and the children have to pay. In contrast to that, because I've noticed in the past, people have asked me about this, they're like, that just doesn't seem fair to the third and fourth generation. But the contrast is to the thousandth generation. That is to say God's judgment and the power of evil is in fact limited. God's power is not, but the power of evil is. But God's grace is even greater. It goes to a thousand generations. The works of evil, all, they will be cut short. We may lose heart and wonder about that at times. Sometimes after three or four generations. Sometimes immediately. In Deuteronomy 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. Keeping his covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. The compound growth rate of evil is temporary and it is limited. God's judgment will cut it short, perhaps immediately, perhaps after the third or fourth generation. But the compound growth rate of righteousness is long-term to a thousand generations. It doesn't mean that it's a straight line. There may be intermittent hiccups in which perhaps one generation sort of flakes out, but their children will in fact come back to following God. But the comparison is between a brief period, third or fourth generation, to the thousandth generation. This is God's mercy. And all of this is in the context of don't make carved images. The question is, which system will you follow? Your own? You do that, you've got three or four generations at most. Or God's, which lasts to the thousandth generation. The third and final difficulty uh, is a problem of God being jealous. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Jealous God sounds suspiciously like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That God is jealous? 
And we think of jealousy as something that's really bad. And in fact, in human beings, it can be. But this is the reason for this commandment. Don't make carved images. Okay? Don't worship them. And the reason is because I'm jealous. I'm a jealous God. This God is one who visits the iniquity of fathers on the following generations of rebels, but one who shows mercy to the generations, a thousand generations of faithful, obedient covenant keepers. One writer put it this way, calling God jealous is a biblical way of noting God's passionate involvement with his people. God isn't some cold, detached administrator, you know, like checking, oh, did you do wrong? Did you do right? God is someone who is very much involved with his people. And when they do wrong, it affects him emotionally. God redeemed Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. And now he is entering into a personal relationship with them in a covenant. If they, in fact, violate that covenant, that is a betrayal. It is a betrayal. And God is jealous. You are my people. Don't be worshiping other gods. Don't create gods of your own because I am a jealous God. Anything that would take his people away from him is a cause for jealousy. Read the prophets and note the emotional language as God refers to Israel as his bride who has been unfaithful to him. Just think in purely human terms, if you are in a relationship with someone, a committed relationship, husband and wife, and then somebody comes along and tries to seduce, tries to tempt one partner to leave that relationship, uh, jealousy is the appropriate response. No, we are married, we are husband and wife. And that's what God is saying here. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Like the first five commandments, we've only looked at one, but now we're looking at the second. Um, there is an explanation for why they are supposed to do this commandment. The first one is they are not to have any other God because God delivered them out of Egypt. That's the basis. The second one is they are not to make carved images because God is a jealous God. They are not to take the Lord's name in vain because God will not hold you guiltless. They are to keep the Sabbath holy because of the creation week. The seventh day was the day set aside for rest. And they are, we are to honor our parents, our father and mother, so that we may live long on the earth. The second commandment, which we're looking at specifically today, tells us that God is in control of history. Okay? Not sin or rebellion. That might go to the third or fourth generation, but God will, in fact, intervene. It isn't, the world isn't simply cause and effect, karma. It's not even history itself. God is the one who determines the extent of the effects of sin. He is the one who loves and shows mercy, and he is the one who judges as well. So how do we apply this to the world we live in today because for the most part I don't think that we make carved images but we certainly are guilty of idolatry 
An idol is something within creation that is inflated to serve as a substitute for God. It doesn't necessarily deny that God exists. In fact, as a Christian, as I speak to God, and we're in relationship, it is something that slowly but surely creeps in and then comes between God and myself. It becomes inflated to the point that it becomes more important to me than my relationship with God. As soon as our loyalty to anything, not God, leads us to obey God, then we are in danger of making it an idol. An idol is not a full-size replacement for God because God is infinite. You can't have a replacement for God, but you just have a substitute, something that you put in the place of God. The one thing we find in the Old Testament about idols, about these images, is that they lie. They lie about God, which is kind of strange because Psalm 115, Psalm 135, they talk about idols that have ears but they can't hear, noses they can't smell, mouths they can't speak, eyes they can't see. Then how is it in fact that they lie? In Habakkuk 2, of what value is an idol since a man carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? An idol by its very existence is lying to us. We may have created it. Somebody else may have created it. It may be something that we have thought up on our own. Like, yeah, comfort. My comfort is the most important thing to me. Well, then it's become an idol. Okay? And it lies to us to say, that's, that's, that's all you need. That's the most important thing. All that idols can do is lie because they are birthed from lies. There's an incident that happened uh, as Israel is in the wilderness. It's toward the end of their time in the wilderness that illustrates the danger of idols, of images, and of simply of idolatry. It takes place in uh, Numbers chapter 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That which God gave them freely, the manna. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Here again, we have a case of God telling Moses to make an image, okay, but not for the purpose of worship. It is, they have sinned, they're being bitten by poisonous snakes, and they have repented, and so God says, listen, make this, and if they're bitten and they look at it, they in fact will not die. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10. 
we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So this is obviously where Israel sinned, but God made a way of uh, deliverance. But perhaps the truly significant uh, mention is found in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus by night. And Jesus says to him in part, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So remarkably, the bronze serpent on the pole being lifted up, if people looked at it after they were bitten, they would live, they wouldn't die. That is a prefiguring of Jesus being lifted up on a cross in crucifixion. And those who put their faith in him will live. That's an amazing thing. But there's one more mention of this serpent. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 18. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. So these were were pagan worship. Idol worship was taking place. Asherah poles, a sign of fertility, he cut them down, and he smashed the so-called sacred stones. But listen to this. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. That's in parenthesis. Nehushtan, we don't know where it got that name. Hezekiah may have given it to him because Nehushtan means just a piece of brass. That's all it was, just a piece of brass. I don't know if you know the timeline. This is seven centuries after Moses. For seven centuries, not all, but certain people in Israel had been burning incense and worshiping that which God had told Moses to create as a means of salvation from dying, from being bitten by a poisonous snake. But now it becomes a replacement for God. Imagine that. This wonderful thing whereby if you were bitten by a poisonous snake and you're supposed to die, if you look at this serpent that's lifted up, you will live. And you don't know it, but millennia later, the Son of God will be lifted up on a cross. And if we look to him in faith, we will be saved. This is a wonderful thing. And it becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. I mean, seven centuries, can't even wrap our minds around that. I mean, you go back seven centuries, this country wasn't, certainly wasn't here. They had been worshiping a gift from God. As one writer put it, Nehushtan should be a powerful reminder to us all that even good things and good people can become idols in our lives. Our praise, worship, and adoration are to be directed to God alone. Nothing else regardless of its amazing history, is worthy. Nehushtan, just a piece of brass, and yet for seven centuries, 
people have been worshiping it. And it took Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah, to come along and say, that's it, no more. And he broke it into pieces. In Deuteronomy, which is a retelling of the law, it means literally second law, Moses recounts much of what's happened to Israel. And this is what he writes in chapter 4. He reminds them, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire, that is at Mount Sinai. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. How tempting is it when you see the grandeur of God's creation to then that becomes an idol of sorts. He continues, but as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's what the second commandment is about. God cares. He is in control. Evil will not go on on its own. You know, at the third or fourth generation, we see certain uh, political systems, uh, certain individuals, and then maybe their children or their grandchildren doing things they shouldn't do. That will not go on, you know, past the fourth generation. But God's faithfulness continues to a thousand generations. God cares. And he is very much involved in our lives. And the second commandment is a reminder of that. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we hear of idols, uh, we, our thoughts tend to go in several directions. One is that they're harmless enough. After all, we have a TV show, American Idol. Um, the other is we think only in terms of images, and we don't have images around with us. But sadly, we don't think carefully enough to realize that things, even gifts from you, can become inflated beyond their true significance. And suddenly they become more important to us than you are. And we should not, we should not imagine that you don't care about this. You are a jealous God. As a spouse, should rightly be jealous when someone attempts to break up a marriage. So you are rightly jealous when we disobey you. Our hearts are always putting out idols 
It's always the temptation to be a creator on our own, in our own right to be able to create something that will bring us joy, that will bring us happiness. And above all, something that we can control. And may we be encouraged as we live in a difficult time, a troubling time, to remember that evil cannot go on endlessly. It does reemerge from time to time, but you see it as lasting perhaps three or four generations. But your faithfulness goes on and on and on. And we are so grateful for that. May we guard our hearts, may you guard our hearts by your spirit, that we not take those wonderful gifts from you, for which we are profoundly grateful, and then suddenly they become way, way too important to us. May we realize that you alone are the Lord, we are not to have any other gods. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray for Tom and Ann as they fly back tomorrow that you would give them safety. And we look forward to hearing Tom play again next Sunday. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.